All right, well, if you would, let's turn again to the book of Romans in chapter 12. Uh, Romans chapter 12. As you're turning there, let me say a special word of greeting to our guests who are with us this morning. Uh, We we are very, very glad that you're here. Uh, We love having visitors come worship with us. You're welcome anytime. And we certainly pray that that God will bless you uh, as you spend your time with us in the Word of God this morning. Uh, Let me also mention that if you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, that's okay. You're welcome to use one of the Bibles provided for you in the seats in front of you. And if you want to use one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning on page 948. Uh, 948 in those Bibles. Well, the first Star Wars movie came out in 1977. I was born in 1981, Uh, but like many young boys then and now, I was a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, I collected the toy action figures. I had Star Wars posters up in my bedroom. Uh, When I got together with friends as a kid, we would romp around outside pretending to be Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, and we would use sticks as lightsabers. Uh, There's one scene from the first Star Wars movie, Episode 4, that comes back to my mind from from time to time. Uh, You have a a small group of starfighters trying to bring down the Death Star, this terrible weapon that can destroy planets. And one pilot, he's called Gold Leader, he has the job, the central job, of trying to shoot this torpedo into a very tiny space. But if he hits his target, the Death Star will be destroyed uh, and the good guys will win. But it has to be a perfect shot. And as Gold Leader is flying where he needs to be for this shot, the chaos of war is happening all around him. So there's laser guns firing from the Death Star, spaceships shooting at each other. Uh, We see some of the ships exploding in a ball of flames. And then to make matters worse, just as Gold Leader is approaching his target, three new enemies get on his tail, one piloted by Darth Vader himself. And his gold leader is flying through this very narrow space. One false move and he'll hit the Death Star. He's panicking and he shouts out, I can't maneuver. And over his speaker, he hears Gold 5 say, stay on target. But but they're too close. Stay on target. So it becomes this mantra in the midst of the craziness. Stay on target. Stay on target. And so... I come to you this morning with a very simple question. In the very craziness of your life, are you still on target? That is, has your life gotten derailed? Has your life gotten distracted? Has your life gotten taken off course? Or are you still on the target that God has set for you? And if we could summarize that target, if we could summarize the aim of our lives in one word, I think it would be the word love. 
love. What is the greatest commandment? What is the the chief thing God has said for you to do with your life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what is the second most important thing God has said for you to do with your life? Love your neighbor as yourself. Here is the fulfillment of the law. Here is the kind of person Christ has saved you to be. Faith is vital. Hope is wonderful. But the greatest of all virtues is love. And so at home and at work and at school and in every sphere of your life, here is your God-given purpose. Love. Love God and love others. So dear friend, are you on target? When explosions are happening around you, when conflicts arise, when your patience is being tested, when trials seem to be coming at you from every direction, are you still on target? Christians are people who have been greatly loved. We have been loved more than we can imagine or comprehend. And living in Christ's love for us, we should find that his love abounds in us, builds us up, and then pours out in worship towards him and acts of service towards those around us. See, here's how you know that you've truly come to know God. You love him and you love his people. Here is how we become like Jesus. We grow in love. And here is how we have a dramatic effect on the lives of those around us. We love. So much else in this world is going to pass away. Everything done in love lasts into eternity. Are you living a life of love? Well, in this passage we've been studying, this is our final week on this passage, Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, we've seen that God has given each of us a special group of people to love. Uh, This group of people has been especially chosen by God for you and your sanctification. And it is through your life with these people that you continue to learn how to love. That you practice sacrificial servanthood kinds of love. This group of people is your local church. Paul's writing to the church in Rome. He speaks to them about how they're to be living as living sacrifices to God because of all the grace that he has shown to them. He's teaching them to be transformed, not to be conformed to this world. And this is where he begins. Live a life of worship to God. How? By loving the people of God in your midst. Love God by loving his people. Love God by pouring yourself out in love for those whom Christ has purchased. Well, Mount Hermon, we should love everybody But these people in this body are to be the special objects of your love. Look at the passage one last time. Beginning in verse 3. This is the very word of God. Beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so here is what we see. God has given you a special group of people to love. We are one body in Christ. We're united to one another, connected to each other, literally members of one another, so that as we've said, Christians can honestly say to other Christians, you complete me. I am a part of you. You are a part of me in this body. And while we are to love one another in numerous ways, God has chosen to bless each of us with certain qualities, certain skills that God uses to a more than ordinary degree to bless his children. In other words, God has given to each of his children spiritual gifts. And as we use our gifts, God is loving his children through us. He, he loves his children through his children. He loves his people through my love for them and your love for them expressed in spiritual gifts. So last week, I gave you a working definition of spiritual gifts. I'm going to give it to you again in two sentences. So just hear this. Spiritual gifts are gifts of God's grace to his children so that they can find joy in blessing others for his glory. They are acts of service carried out by the Christian in faith, humility, and love, which the Holy Spirit regularly empowers and makes fruitful for the building up of God's people. And we unpacked that last time. But the key command of the whole passage, verses 6, 7, and 8, is found in verse 6. Use them. Use them. When it comes to your spiritual gifts, use them. Be active in loving the people of this body. See the acts of love that God seems to more than ordinarily bless in your life and do those all the more. Use your spiritual gifts. Now, verses 6, 7, and 8 are really hard to translate. In the Greek, they're written in a very weird fashion. Your grammar teacher would not be pleased with the Apostle Paul, okay, and the way he wrote verses 6, 7, and 8 in the Greek. But I think the ESV does about as good a job as any at getting the idea across. And what it boils down to is this. Do your gift. Do your gift. Don't be jealous that somebody else has another gift. 
don't demean the spiritual gifts that God has given to you. Don't look at somebody else and say, oh Lord, why didn't you make me like them? Why couldn't I be the arm in this body and not the toenail? (laughs) Right? Why did you have to give me this role? No, Paul says, do your gift and embrace it. Just like in the church of Corinth, where Paul is writing, I mean, I'm sorry, where Paul is yeah, writing this letter, uh, it seems like the church in Rome might have been tempted to exalt some gifts above the others. Uh, those who had the gift of teaching or those who had the gift of prophecy might have been seen as more important than people who had other gifts. But Paul has already attacked pride at the beginning of this passage. And he has reminded us that we're all parts of one body in the middle of this passage. And now at the end of the passage, he's saying, embrace your gift and use it well. Don't despise what God can do through you as you love in the ways that God has made you strong. So maybe it's service. Maybe God made you in such a way that you just find it easy to stop what you're doing and lend a hand to those around you when they have a need. Or maybe it's hospitality. Maybe God has equipped you to be someone who you can open up your home regularly to others and they they come and they leave encouraged. They leave blessed. Or maybe it's generosity. Maybe God has given you a heart that's just easily moved with compassion like the heart of God. And God's given you some means to to help other people financially. Maybe your gift is encouragement. You love drawing close to people, listening to them as they share what they're struggling through. And then you speak a word of comfort to them. Every church needs all of the gifts. The body cannot be strong. It cannot be healthy. It cannot be growing without them all. And so these verses teach us to use our gifts. But then the verses go further. They don't just tell us to use our gifts. They teach us how to use them. That is, these three verses teach us the attitudes that we are to have. It's not just important, Mount Hermon, that we serve one another through spiritual gifts. We must do so with the right spirit. So who wants to be taught by someone who is teaching out of an attitude of self-centeredness? Look at me. Who wants to be received into a home by someone who really wants you there just so they can brag about all their nice furniture? Who wants to be lent a hand by someone who is clearly doing it begrudgingly because they feel like they ought to and not because they want to? Real blessings come when we use our spiritual gifts in the right way, with the right attitude. From the right posture of our hearts. This is what matters. Don't we want to be a church. Abounding in the blessings of God. Don't we want to be a haven for people. That is warm and transforming. And full of joy. Then it's not just that we use our gifts. It's that we use our gifts. With the right attitudes. So how should we use our gifts? Five answers in this passage. We're going to move through them quickly. There's actually more than five. We're limiting ourselves to five. Number one, it's the most obvious one. 
we should use our spiritual gifts in love. In love. Because love is all over the context of these verses. The whole reason that we're even talking about spiritual gifts is that Paul is teaching us how to respond to the great love of God. We as Christians have been so richly loved by Jesus Christ. And now, here is how we get to respond to God's love with our own love, through spiritual gifts. So love for God should permeate our acts of service to one another. And we're to love each other in the gifts. That's where Paul was heading. Look at verse 9. right? Let love be genuine. Look at verse 10. Love one another <clears throat> with brotherly affection. Uh, we think of the love that Jesus had for his disciples as he knelt and washed their feet. Uh, we think of the love Jesus had for us as he went to the cross and bore the wrath of God in our place. As Jesus has loved us, so we are to love one another. Look at each other. Look around. See each other. As Christ has loved you, so you are to love each other. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that if we do everything else right as a church, but we don't have love, we are nothing. We accomplish nothing. We are a noisy gong. We're a clanging cymbal. We might be a church that makes a bunch of noise. But it's meaningless. I am so thankful for many in this church body who set the example in this. We have people in this church body who serve one another with the very love of God in your heart. There is genuinely love, genuine love in this church. I see regularly brotherly affection happening in this church. And so this is a call for that to abound. When you serve in the nursery or give your offerings or teach a Sunday school class or take a meal to one another, let it be genuine love that motivates you. And let's be honest. There are some of us for whom this is a greater struggle. Maybe you find yourself being impatient with people and your heart is not so easily moved to sympathy or compassion and sometimes personality differences get in the way. One of the great reasons God gives us each other to love is because it will not always be easy. We will shake our heads at the decisions that each other make. We will find sometimes we have very different interests. Even keeping a conversation going can be difficult sometimes. Sadly, due to sin, there are times when we as Christians are going to get on each other's nerves and we are going to drive each other crazy. It is precisely in those moments that we get to practice the love of God. For we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were a stench in his holy nose. We were disgusting to his sight. We were covered in sin like cow manure. And God chose to love us. And he genuinely loved us. 
He sincerely loved us and he acted on that love in sending his son. And now Jesus says, follow me. Follow me in loving the hard to love. Follow me in loving when it's difficult. Nothing shows the glory of God in this world like a group of Christians who are fighting to love one another. Um, Too many churches have Christians fighting each other. We want to be a church where Christians are fighting. They're fighting to love one another. They're fighting the sin in their hearts. They're fighting selfishness within themselves. They're fighting the awkwardness that they sometimes find themselves in to push through and say, no, I will love my brother. I will love my sister because that is what God has done for me and that's what he's called me to do. Now, Herman, let's serve one another in love. Number two, we should use our spiritual gifts to serve one another in humility. Humility. We, that was the theme of verses 3, 4, 5, 6. Verse 3, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Verses 4 and 5, embrace your place as part of the larger body of Christ. You alone are not the bride of Christ. I alone am not the bride of Christ. It's us together who are the bride. Verse 6, humble yourself to use the gift that God has given you. In prophecy, that's what it is, in proportion to your faith. Not out of proportion. Don't be the guy who's been a Christian for 10 minutes and suddenly he thinks he needs to teach everybody else. In your use of spiritual gifts, be humble. Three helps here, very quickly. Number one, remember what you deserve. Remember that you and I are sinners deserving of hell. And instead, we get the privilege of serving the king of the ages through spiritual gifts. It's an honor to serve in the king's house. We should see our acts of service as a privilege. Second, count others more significant than yourself. Always consider that the person you are serving has an immortal soul. Recognize that whoever that person is today, you don't know what God might still do in and through that person in the future. Whatever the world thinks of that person, even if the world considers that person the poorest and the weakest and the most insignificant, you are to think of that other person as being of great importance, more significant than yourself. In the house of God, you know Christ died for that person. The very Son of God gave His life for that brother or sister. If Jesus was willing to suffer and die for that person, surely you should be willing to bring them a meal or cut their lawn or hear what they have to say without getting angry. Third help is just to remember the Pharisees. Remember how they would give to the poor, but the Pharisees would ring a bell as they gave to the poor. I'm giving to the poor now. Remember how they would pray? And we were told they would go out on the street corner and they would pray loudly and they would pile up words, oh, magnificent, glorious, all marvelous, all wise, immortal God. Why? Because they weren't serving out of love to God. 
They were serving out of self-righteousness to draw attention to themselves. But Mount Hermon, we're already loved by God. We're already accepted by God. We do not need the praise or adoration of men. What is the praise or adoration of men compared to being accepted by God? And so let us throw off every trace of ostentation. Let us throw off every trace of wanting to be seen in our spiritual gift. I'm keeping nursery today, right here, it's me. No, it's God, you saved me, and God, I love what you're doing here, and God, I love these people, and if I can help, I'm just I'm going to help. I make a big deal about it. I'm just going to help. Third answer to how we should serve in this passage, we've already hinted at it. We should use our spiritual gifts in faith. In faith. It's most clear in verse 6 where he talks about the gift of prophecy. We looked at that Wednesday night. But it applies to all of the spiritual gifts. And here's the point. We're to serve in such a way that we know that ultimately it must be Christ who blesses our efforts or nothing of eternal good will come from it. If our desire is to love one another in such a way that we're all growing in Christ, bearing fruit, becoming strong in the Lord, it must be Christ himself that makes it happen. We use our spiritual gifts not in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ's promises. It is Christ who commands us to love and serve one another. And it is Christ who has promised that he will add his blessing. He will send his spirit. He will call supernatural, good, miraculous things to happen in the souls and lives of people because of that very practical thing that you're doing. Read Ephesians 2. It's in the assurance of passages like that one that we can serve one another confidently, believing Jesus is at work as I'm loving you in this way. One implication of that is that our love towards one another should always be bathed in prayer. So when you take a meal to your hurting brother or sister, pray as you're cooking it. Or pray as you're picking it up at Bojangles. Either one. God, would you use this meal to bring some encouragement to my brother or sister? God, would you use this tiny little act to make a big impact, helping that person to know they are loved, not just by me, but Father, would you help them to know they are loved by you through this act? Your Bojangles chicken can't make that happen, but God can make it happen through the Bojangles chicken. And so you pray as you're doing the act. When you're giving your offerings on Sunday, or you, you slip that $50 bill to a person in our church that you know is struggling financially, do you seek God's blessing as you do it? You say, Father, may, may this money be a real help and encouragement to this person. Yes, Father, maybe it'll help meet a financial need, but more than that, will this show this person that they're not alone? Will this be used by you, Father, to show that, that we care for them and that you care for them and that you will fulfill your promise and supply everything that they need? You see, prayer is the language of faith. Prayer is the breathing in and out of the spiritual life. I mean, this should be one of just hundreds of prayers that you're shooting up to God as you walk through your day every single day. So it should be very natural to you as you're doing these acts of service to just say, God, will you bless this? 
for the good of my brother, for the good of my sister. Will you bless this? Number four, we see in this passage we're to use our spiritual gifts in sincerity. In sincerity. That is, we're to use our spiritual gifts from the heart. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. A literal translation of this verse would go like this. Or service in the service. Or one teaching in the teaching. Okay, so what, what does that mean, Paul? Well, it at least means this. Whatever gifts God has given you to do, you're to give yourself fully to them. That is, you're to embrace your gifts and use them with a passion, with an eagerness, with an all-in attitude, with an earnestness about your acts of love. The idea of sincerity becomes even clearer in verse 8, doesn't it? Because Paul follows the same pattern with the gift of exhortation, but he makes a change. He says, the one who contributes in generosity. So contributing is the outward act, but Paul says generosity must be the motivation. You should contribute because you genuinely want to. You delight to do it. Your heart is in the act. Next gift, the one who leads with zeal. So if you've been given an opportunity to lead in the church, whether it's as a pastor or a deacon or a ministry leader of some kind, you're not to lead half-heartedly. You're not to be half in. You're to be all in. You're to be zealous. You're to put time and energy and thought and prayer. You're to put your heart into your leadership. You're to be zealous to do those you are leading true and eternal good. And so there's this characteristic here of sincerity, of being all in in the gifts that God has given you. And then number five, we see in our passage that we're to use our spiritual gifts with cheerfulness. With cheerfulness. See it at the end of verse eight? You know this Greek word. It's the word hilarity. Hilarity. There is to be a true sense of happiness, even laughter, as you serve one another. Uh, This Greek word hilarity means um, an eager spirit, a happy, willing spirit. Uh, When our boys were younger, we used to listen to a CD of Bible verses that um, put the verses to music for little kids. And one of the songs that we listened to a lot was from Proverbs 17, 22, A Joyful Heart is Good Medicine. And ask Benjamin after the service and he'll sing it for you so that you can hear how it goes. But the point of that verse is that often a joyful heart can do as much for your body as medicine. That a joyful heart can actually affect your body. It can actually strengthen your body. When your soul is happy, it affects the body. But there's more to it than that. Because a joyful heart isn't just good medicine for ourselves. A joyful heart can be good medicine to others too. Cheerfulness can be contagious. So maybe we go over to Somerset and we bring Miss Sally a flower to encourage her. But because you're happy in God's blessings, 
because you're full of thankfulness, because your heart is joyful, as you're talking with Miss Sally, your own cheerfulness, even more than the flower, is doing her good. It's good medicine for her. God uses each other's joy in Christ to encourage us, even as we're using our spiritual gifts. In other words, Paul is saying, don't just serve one another. Be happy servants of one another. Be hilarity. Be laughing servants of one another. Right? And Mount Hermon, don't we have every reason to be happy? (laughs) Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. We have every reason to be happy. So let our attitudes as we serve match the reality of the blessings that we live in. Serve in joy. Before we close, I want to mention one more reason why this really matters. Why how we serve each other matters. And it's this. How we serve each other matters for the witness of this church. You see, leading and giving and exhorting and acts of mercy, these are all wonderful spiritual gifts. But you know what? Those are also things you can do that aren't spiritual gifts. Unbelievers can do those things. There are unbelievers who are wonderful leaders. There are non-Christians who hate the name of Jesus and give millions to charitable causes. There are lots of unbelievers who can exhort you to work harder or to work smarter and give you excellent advice in some area or another. Mount Hermon, what shows the glory of God is not just that we do these things. It's how we do them. That's the difference. That's what makes them spiritual gifts. We are to use our gifts as saved sinners. The banner over this whole passage is Romans 1 through 11. (laughs) That we were under the wrath of God. That we were headed to hell. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have been justified by faith. We have been set free from our slavery to sin. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been adopted by God. All things are working for our good. Heaven is in our future. Here is what the world cannot do. They cannot serve in the love of God. The world can't serve that way. The world cannot serve from a heart that has been redeemed. Only the people of God can serve from a heart that has been redeemed. The world cannot serve people from a heart that has found the great treasure of Jesus Christ. Most tellingly, the world cannot serve in a Christ-centered forgetfulness. Where they don't think about themselves in the act. It's all for Christ. It's all for Christ. Because we love Him so much. Because of what God has done for us, there is to be a flavor to our service that the world cannot imitate. There is to be an aroma to our love for one another that is a sweeter aroma than any this world knows. And when unbelievers spend time among us as a church, they should smell us. And it should be a good thing. (laughs) 
They should smell the aroma of redeemed love in us. And they should realize that they've stumbled upon something special, something unusual, something supernatural. As they watch us loving each other sacrificially, caring for each other, being concerned with each other's issues, weeping with each other, rejoicing with each other, they're seeing the love of Jesus on display. And it's not mainly in the acts themselves, it's in the attitudes of the acts themselves. It's in the way our hearts are shown through the acts. Mount Hermon, we need Christ to help us if this is to be true of us. The devil, the world, the flesh, they all want us to get off target. And we're prone to go off target. But we have the Spirit of God, and we have the Word of God, and we have each other to help us stay on target. So here's the bottom of it all. Everything we've been talking about is fruit. Serving one another with love, humility, faith, sincerity, cheerfulness. It's all fruit. Living in the saving love of Jesus, that's the root. If you don't have the root, you cannot have the fruit. If you're not living in the love of Jesus for you, you will never be able to serve others in this way. So here's the question. Are you living in the saving love of Jesus Christ this morning? Are you walking close to Christ? Have you entrusted your whole self to the care of Christ? Are you basking in the forgiveness of your sins? Or just to boil it all down, is Jesus everything to you? Is Jesus everything to you? The more we grow in our love for Jesus, the more we will grow in blessing one another through spiritual gifts. May God make it so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.